Hi, my name is Ben Atkinson and welcome to the Functional Health Podcast. I interview some of the leading voices in nutrition and lifestyle medicine and I will share with you their stories, their expertise and their advice, shedding light on the industry from each of their perspectives to help improve your health from today. This week, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Dr. Jen Unwin. Jen is a consultant clinical health psychologist based in the UK, and she works with the NHS, helping patients manage chronic illness and achieve increased well-being. This was a hugely uplifting conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ben. It is a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank, I was honoured to be in, put in touch with you through David. <laughs> no, not not at all. I I I love these kinds of conversations, so it's just a, it's just a, it'd be a pleasure for me. Thank you. <laughs> You're very very welcome. And we were just talking about something which I thought was quite interesting, which was coffee, because I am currently drinking a caffeinated coffee, um, and you've got decaf and. Do you, do you have an aversion to caffeine? Yes, I think I do. <laughs> so um, I've I've always really liked. I love the flavour of coffee, and I I love I love I loved drinking caffeinated coffee. Um, but I think I'm one of those people. There are some people who don't metabolise it as as fast as others. It's a sort of genetic thing, I think. So I I did notice. You know, because it has quite a long half-life, doesn't it? So if you have yeah. a strong coffee and then another strong, and I like it strong, another strong coffee, it kind of builds up. That caffeine's building up in your system, and I would occasionally feel a bit jittery or maybe have sleep problems. But uh, really, the main motivation for me is um, I have a tendency to migraine, mm-hmm. and I, I'm always looking for things that it is much, much better now. It's very rare for me to get them now because of lots of lifestyle things that I've done. Um, but I had to go for a little procedure. And it, they'd asked that we didn't drink coffee. And so I hadn't had any coffee. And it was about one or two o'clock in the afternoon. And I was, I had the worst. It was, yeah, it was a terrible, terrible headache. I could barely function. Uh, David had to drive me to the hospital uh, to, to get this thing done. And then I had a, ca- a coffee straight afterwards and felt completely fine. So I thought, hmm, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm obviously too, too, too susceptible to the effects of it and quite addicted to it. <laughs> So I cut it down slowly, slowly, slowly. And and even so, the last little bit was really hard to give up. And I got a lot of really horrible symptoms like crushing in the chest. I'm not a panicky person at all, but sort of panicky feelings, depressed. Mm. It was really grim. But once I was through the withdrawals, I've been fine and I haven't noticed any difference. So I function completely fine without caffeine, like every human being ever did back in the day. <laughs> Before it was discovered. And now I have decaf because I do quite like the flavour. So uh, that's quite a long answer. But I think it might, you know, it might be useful for some people uh, to hear that, you know, it is possible to live without caffeine and coffee. You've, you've <laughs> yeah. completely well. And I'm much steadier and I have fewer cravings for foods. And my energy is much more level than it was sort of up and down like you, you get with caffeine. And as I say, headaches better, uh, sleep better. So on balance, I've I've kept to it. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, I've never had a problem with sleep with caffeine. I think genetically I'm a fast metabolizer. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that plays a part. But 
yeah, you're right. But people should be able to function without it. And right now, I have to say, I, I probably can't function very well without caffeine. Um, yeah. and, and that is that is a an addictive some, thing, that, isn't it? It's an addictive thing. It doesn't quite work in the same addictive way as some of the other things we're probably going to talk about today. Um, but it blocks your tiredness receptors, doesn't it? That's that's how it works. I kind of looked into it when I was going to give it up. Um, so it. I'm sure that's not a great thing. I'm sure tiredness signaling is a good thing we should be paying attention to. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, that where we're looking at things like, you know, you know, burnout or people getting very anxious or sleep problems, it's it's not a great idea to block your tiredness receptors. You should You should be responding to those signals from your brain and body mm -hmm. and kind of taking care of yourself. I think it's a kind of modern phenomenon where we feel it's important to kind of keep going power through <laughs> yeah. the caffeine and you know that that's it's probably not is it when we think about evolution and how our bodies and brains are in this lovely balance if you just leave them alone <laughs> yeah that yeah it's such a good point i always feel that though i like function normally at a certain level and i always want to function slightly higher than that level so <laughs> i feel like but now because i've been t you know consuming coffee and caffeine for so so long that that normal level is caffeinated do you know what i mean yeah. so exactly. I'm, not, I'm probably not getting any real benefit from that anymore in terms of like cognitive performance or you know yeah. I, I know it works for exercise as a ergogenic aid and prob that's probably not affecting me anymore um yeah because because like all things we're in homeostasis aren't we so the body's gonna pu push back <laughs> yes yes and, and it probably means i'm more tired when i when i you know experience I, I, tiredness I, th I think that's I think that's the case. I think it's a sort of yeah, it's a, it's it's that trap that we get into with anything addictive. <laughs> you you do it because it makes you feel better in the short term, but actually in the long term, what are the effects? Yes, and, uh, I'm really in I'm really interested in that and how you help people out of that trap. Yeah, and we're going to dive into that later. Yeah, but just to stay on coffee, I don't want to make the yes. whole podcast about coffee. No, you can. That's fine. <laughs> Um, I, didn't, I, just I certainly didn't plan to, <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it? Because coffee has, well, from the scientific literature, it seems to have lots of beneficial effects, caffeinated coffee as well as decaf, but a lot of the work's been done on caffeinated. Um, and it seems to be beneficial for the liver and all sorts of things. But yeah, that, that kind of substance addiction element is a real problem. And I think people are probably not masking their chronic fatigue through their consumption of coffee so maybe masking some underlying dysfunctions if you will um mm. which you know yeah. i just yeah i'm thinking Possibly. about these now i'm I think, thinking out loud i think it's um um you know just before we got on we were chatting about the uniqueness of human beings weren't mm. we and I, I think unfortunately yes we we read that stuff don't we like oh you know a glass of a glass of wine's fantastic for everybody a coffee is brilliant for everybody and I, that's not true it's just not true is it because we're, we're all so unique that say that my in in terms of my chemistry and my you know this this sort of propensity i have from migraine that i got from my mum it it actually isn't great for me <laughs> so <laughs> you know that you always have to take any of those sort of an experiment you know i i I'm a, I'm a real I do a lot on myself we do, David and I do a lot of sort of self-experimentation with things like caffeine or alcohol or I, I don't drink alcohol either that's another thing I experimented with mm. with giving I never was much of a drinker um 
but I experimented with giving up partly because again <laughs> headaches um uh but also food cravings I know we're going to talk about that but um it it it, it that really does act in the reward center of the brain as the same way as other drugs of addiction but also sh sugar um so I thought oh, I'm actually going to try just completely giving up alcohol to see people are going to think I'm such a <laughs> such a clean living person uh, <laughs> but I'm going to do an experiment to see and I experimented and on the whole I've I felt better so I've never gone back to it so it wasn't somebody saying, oh, you should, you know, you should give up this or you should give up that. It's like you're saying you want to be at your best. You want to be functioning at your highest level. Mm. If that's your goal, try some stuff out, you know, give it a good, obviously with alcohol and caffeine, you have to give it a good go, like a month or something. Dairy, other things like that. You can just give it a go and, and see for you personally, because you're your, you're your best data. Nobody can falsify your own observations of your energy sleep weight maintenance um yeah mental health all of those things don't lie <laughs> for yeah yourself um yeah so and that uh, comes yeah. it's like personalized nutrition and personalized lifestyle isn't it and because it, you can look at like an intervention and it can benefit the vast majority of people but then if you're one of those people where it has a negative effect then it has a negative effect you know what i mean it doesn't matter if it benefits those people it might might benefit them not you and that's something and that, that we should should address as well sorry that, definitely that data's lost in big meta-analyses or these massive um studies where they they're just associational really where they you fill in a food questionnaire but they've they've asked absolutely thousands of people uh it, 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 those individual variations that are masked with it within that there will have been people who didn't benefit from red wine or whatever whatever it was but it's just it's hidden in the it's hidden in the overall averages um and none of us are average are we we're all incredibly unique Oh, I like that. Yeah, let's go with that. We're all incredibly <laughs> unique. <laughs> yeah. No one is average, you're right. No, no one one's is average. You know, different ages, genders, genetics, uh, cultures, psychology. It's mm -hmm. not just about the physiology when, when we're talking about, you know, what people should and shouldn't eat or exercise or, you know, what, whatever the advice is. Uh, it it always, has, always has to take into account a, a person's preferences and then have a go and and see if it works it's it's always it's always so annoying when you have a go and it doesn't work for you and people kind of think well you didn't do it right or you didn't you know <laughs> they want to sort of hold on to their position of i don't know what it is whole grains are good or whatever <laughs> yeah or ca coffee's oh. fine you know i don't mind if anyone else drinks coffee you know that's great i'm just not going to you don't need to feel threatened by it <laughs> no way you know i'm not going to eat sugar you know, and people get can get really defensive about that, or the you know, or carbohydrates. You know, I don't mind what you eat, but this, you know, I'm talking about my own personal experience, uh, um, and, and nobody can nobody can challenge that. That's the final arbiter. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Your background is quite different to to David's, and since you're a clinical psychologist, what led you to the field of working with chronic diseases and also lifestyle medicine? I guess. Great question. So, so I I worked for over thirty two years as a clinical psychologist in in the NHS, but I was I specialised in in health from from 
from the beginning, I was always really interested in um, that intersection between psychology and healthcare, psychology and illness, psychology and wellness. Um, and I worked in some of the big hospitals in the in the northwest of uh, of England here um, with people with sort of varying conditions. So some of the chronic conditions like, well, cr chronic pain was a big one, uh, but also things like um, diabetes, uh, chronic lung disease, etc. But also with some of the acute care um, departments. So the plastic surgeons, that was a really fascinating group to, to work with. Um, you know, so so trauma, but also cancer care, you know, mm -hmm. where people are having disfiguring surgeries, things like that. Yeah. So I've always been really interested in the health field. And then about uh, 10 years ago, Dave and I were talking about a possible collaboration because we'd never actually worked together on anything. Yeah. Um, so so that sort of uh, that then I discovered the whole low carb, no sugar thing for for myself so it's, that's my own personal journey how did you um, discover it right well i just picked up a, it was one jet one rainy january day and i picked up a <laughs> book in morrison's in the remainder bin called escape the diet trap and it was by dr john briffer it's still in print he's a yeah, uh, i have the book you've got it yeah <laughs> I, I read this book i've been a lifelong dieter looking back sugar addict um weight on weight off never could you know always felt so confused about it because you know obviously I'm a competent person I was a professional we had a family you know most things in my life were were kind of organized and uh you know successful but this I just couldn't crack this one thing around weight and managing what I ate and I tried to follow all the various things and did all the, you know, did the Weight Watchers and the Slimming World. And anyway, people listening will identify some of them, I'm sure, with that with that journey. So, you know, January comes around and I see this book and I think, oh, yet again, you know, I need to find something. <laughs> and lucky for me, that was actually the final piece in, in the jigsaw. I really understood what he was saying about uh, carbohydrates being being sugar and you know the effect that sugar had on you I really understood the sort of physiology I could completely get that and I kept reading things out to David as well mm. and uh, so that was the sort of and some other things were the basis of us working together to help the people with pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes in his practice to to reverse that without without drugs and that's I guess you've had him on the podcast so you know you know that story yes uh, how they it's been so successful and there's well over well over 100 people now who've got type to reverse or without without drugs and they're and they're maintaining it because we support them long term so so that went on uh and then i became quite passionate about this whole idea of sugar addiction and food addiction i trained mm. with Bing johnson in sweden who's you know the recognized sort of international clinical expert on this um it's part of my own story. I retired from the NHS uh, two or three years ago and I've devoted myself to, to this, you know, this this work now and uh, helping people with that. So we I run groups with uh, with a nutritionist and we run uh, weekends. We've got a conference coming up uh, May the 20th, part of the public health collaboration. If people want to look for tickets, go to the public health collaboration website. I will link uh, to that in the show notes for everyone. That would be fantastic. 
we've got a four, yeah, a four day intensive and then a one a one day conference. So yeah, it's um it, it's something I'm really keen to spread spread the word about and to help people because I think um there's an incredible amount of unnecessary suffering for those of us who who have this uh again this you know it's not everybody uh but those for those of us who have that that tendency there are lots of things you can do to to get in a better place yeah and even for people where they might be able to maintain a good hba1c level right your average blood glucose level over three months or something like that so it doesn't seem to be a real problem for them i was in this position right where all my blood markers were good but i would have like what i'd consider like unstable blood sugar fluctuations throughout the day so it would just dip below baseline and get a bit shaky or have cravings and things of that nature so what i've realized is having a low carbohydrate breakfast most of the time suits me very very well um and i don't have cravings or anything like that stable mood stable blood sugar and like my cognition is better um and i find like if i eat too many carbohydrates i become lethargic and all these different things so i became quite biased towards this movement in a way but i also know people on the other side which function very well with a high carbohydrate diet and they Mm. they too can maintain their blood sugar levels they don't have cravings or anything like that and they eat two to three times a day um so yeah it's it's interesting and it comes back to the the point of bio-individuality right so we're all slightly different and therefore we would probably all need as a need probably all benefit from different diets and different macronutrient profiles yeah totally so it's so so individual isn't it um yes it's it's not not everybody some of us are more sugar sensitive let's say (laughs) yeah Um, and we get this these up these ups and downs or you know we get this sort of uh real emotional attachment to sugars and carbohydrates because for various reasons that we'll probably discuss they they make you feel better te- temporarily. They can mm. make you feel temporarily. Uh, so there's there's that, and then there's also the thing about I think a lot of people don't have. I mean, I'm not I'm not a nutritionist. So I don't want to kind of speak out of turn, but this is just what I've noticed. And David, and I've been talking about this recently. Um, you know, you do need a certain amount of the things that are essential are protein, so essential amino acids. And essential fatty acids. So, so that the way that the the body runs, you need a certain amount of fat. Otherwise, you you die basically, wouldn't you? If you didn't have any, that's rabbit starvation. Uh, you need a certain amount of protein because obviously you're replacing um, things all the time. Like, so the HbA1c is based on they do it over ninety days because that's the time your blood replaces itself. So, blood cells have a a ninety day life lifespan Mm -hmm. so if you want to see how sugary your blood has been you might as well wait until you've got a new in a sense and so so our bodies are replacing themselves all the time and you you can't make blood cells out of (laughs) cornflakes you need need some you need protein and i i think um one one issue that i do see with people have a lot of appetite problems and craving problems is that they've not got that base, the base nutrition mm. um, of the of, of the things that the body really wants and, and craves, which is the the essential fats and the essential proteins, you know, that we need for our hormones and, and that. so so uh, 
on when once you've got those then i think yeah there's variation in how much you can flex you know whether it's actually more protein that you eat on top of that essential amount or whether it's the you then adding in you know the the complex carbohydrates i don't think anybody benefits from high sugar highly refined and ultra processed foods i it's i just can't i can't believe we're not designed we didn't evolve to have those you know that that the necess, the, the necessity to, for our bodies to respond to mars bars basically <laughs> you use any example you like that's not a natural thing that we're asking our bodies to do um so i love mm. to look look at this through an evolutionary lens yes yeah, some people can get away with that more easily than others psychologically and physiologically for a while but we all know we've got lots of patients who are normal or underweight who thought they were getting away with eating like that but who actually their metabolism was getting shot and of mm. course as a, as a young person you'd never have a test which would tell you that your metabolism's on the slide <laughs> you just think i you know i i look fine in my 20 you know people in their 20s and 30s on the whole you know they look fine it's easier for them to manage the weight so they might not be overweight but you know who knows what's 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 going on so i you know i'd caution people who think they can get away with a really high sugary uh processed foody you know refined carbohydrate diet if they're not having enough fats and, and proteins to to keep repairing the body mm-hmm. i mean and this is kind of out of my this is me talking as me as i sort of understand it i'm not giving people advice as a professional because i'm a psychologist not a <laughs> not a doctor <laughs> or a nutritionist a nutritionist but um it's interesting is, to hear your perspective for though. yeah for me personally that's how i understand it you know are, are, pe- are people getting away with it uh maybe they are but then you know your metabolism tends to hit the skids in your 40s and you know more in your 50s mm. so you may be maybe storing up trouble but yes yeah I mean, everybody's so different <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i completely agree with you there and in terms of a food addiction element it's it's quite interesting when you say food addiction are there i'm guessing there's specific foods that you're referring to right yeah so um what what would say is you know for most people with that problem with the food sugar addiction problem it's obviously sugar in all its glorious forms which there of which there are many these days because they keep renaming if you look on food labels they keep renaming sugar as things to you know like a smokescreen maltodextrin and things like that people don't know sugar uh yeah so sugar in all its forms grains nearly always any kinds of grains and ultra processed foods most people with a food addiction problem um will do you know uh so so much better if they manage to eliminate those things from from their diet um some rock bottom food addicts of which i'm one have to be a little careful with a couple of other things well sweeteners is another one that's not really a food is it so (laughs) sweetness is another thing that we struggle with because it it lights up the same rewards part of the brain um Mm -hmm. and it keeps that sweet kind of um you know that 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 sweet uh taste flavor you know being used to it sort of thing that's the problem with sweetness 
Uh, but the other two things that some people have a problem moderating are cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's probably because um, it might be to do with the fact that sometimes the proteins in cheese turns into casomorphines, which is a morphine-like substance. So for some people, that's that's a vulnerability. Uh, but also nuts. And the thing with nuts is that they're pretty unique. And, and dairy is pretty unique in having that combination of fat and carbohydrate, which we love. The fattening food, you know, get fat for winter, nuts, uh, dairy. You know, dairy is a, basically a fattener for baby animals. Yeah, yeah, because it works in multiple mechanisms, I guess. Dairy, yeah. milk in particular, really, because it's got that carbohydrate, fat, protein, as well as like, it's very insulinogenic so it spikes insulin more so than the carbohydrates that are actually in it so if you took the carbohydrates in isolation it wouldn't spike insulin as much um Mm. it seems to be i don't know the properties but i think it's like to do with potential hormones and dairy as well as the casein and whey combination which is which are the proteins you want you know but it's to grow baby cows isn't it yeah and (laughs) so you want them to be hungry and you want them to baby cows you want them to eat all the time you want them to spike insulin because that's gonna it's a growth hormone at the end of the day isn't it so uh yeah so dairy can be problematic for some people in terms of moderation as as can nuts <laughs> yeah uh, nuts are interesting because um sorry i keep interrupting you did you okay, want to okay, go, ahead, go ahead <laughs> no i, I finished not there no, nuts can be nuts can be problematic yeah. and again particularly if you uh, if you were to put salt on them because the the, the holy trinity is salt um carbohydrates and fats t- together human beings go mad for that and that's what the food manufacturers exploit you know if you think of all the things that they're trying to sell us like pizza donuts they all have fat sugar and carbohydrate in them yeah they're trying to have that magic combination that I, magic I, I loved combo. i can't remember who said it but it's like stuck in my mind so um i think it was on a it was either a conference or a podcast someone was saying you'll eat raw almonds until you're full but if you honey roast those almonds and salt them, you're going to eat them until your arm gets tired. And I was like, it's such a good point because I've definitely been there, whether I'm in the cinema or something, and someone's got those honey roasted salted almonds and I've just eaten nearly the pack and it's 100 grams, meaning it's probably 600, 700 calories and it doesn't feel like I've eaten anything. I'm literally salivating now you've said honey roasted. <laughs> <laughs> honey roasted almonds. I was picturing myself there. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to moderate those. Oh, you know, so one of the hallmarks of of this food addiction problem is um you know you you just can't moderate so you might say to yourself right i've i've i bought i bought those biscuits i'm 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 just going to have one because i'm having a cup of tea and it'd be lovely to have one biscuit and then completely out with the control of your your logic and your will you eat half a packet or probably in my case the whole packet <laughs> And then afterwards, you're like, why did I do that? It's almost like it's, you're sort of driven, you know, you're driven by this sort of primitive part of your brain that overrides the, the frontal lobes. And that, that's part of what happens, yeah, with the, with the salted nuts or the cheesecake or, or, or whatever it is you think. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people have had that experience where you think, I'll just have one slice of that lovely looking birthday cake that someone's brought into work. And then when nobody's in the office, you nip back for a second. Slice. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I am that person, right? So like you, I am I am also like that. Um, but I know people, my partner, for example, is the one that can open a packet of biscuits, have one, 
and then wrap them up and put them away. You see, if I do that, I am eating five or more, (laughs) you know, and then I might not put them away. (laughs) So that is like, no, it's, I mean, that is so interesting. And it, 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 yes, there are some people like that. <laughs> there we are. Uh, and my mother-in-law is the same. And it always amazes me. I'm always like, how do you even do that? You know, <laughs> I, I can't do that. So, so looking at all the prevalence studies, um, there's been a few. And if we take the, you know, a sort of conservative estimates, probably 8% of the adult population have this problem with, with moderating foods, this food addiction mm. problem. Um but that's 4.3 million people in the UK. Yeah, that's a big and number. And there are, it's not an, it's not a properly acknowledged problem. Probably because it's in some, some, some sectors interests that it, that it doesn't get acknowledged as a, as a problem. I really believe it is a, a you know, a, a particular diagnosis. Um, and because it's not acknowledged, there's very little research on how you help people. So that's mm. what I'm really interested in doing. That's what, myself and this nutrition colleague are, are doing we're running we're sort of running our own study of of if if we do this does do people you know do, can we help people uh and the other thing is there's no services so what happens if you're listening to this podcast and you think right um i might have a i might have a food addiction problem i really identify with that and you go and tell your gp unless it's david or someone else who's heard me speak they're going to go oh i don't i don't think food can be addictive but let's send you to the eating disorder service, right? And then you'll probably wait a long time because the eating disorder services are really, uh, you know, under a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder why. Um, but on the whole, people in the eating disorder services, to, to, they work with bulimia, anorexia, but they don't, on the whole, think that food's an addictive substance. So their treatment is a, a moderation-based treatment. Like you should learn to eat a bit of everything um in moderation is is the goal of most eating disorders treatments i hope i'm not hope i'm not sort of oversimplifying it mostly they don't work with food addiction moderation is never going to work for your me never because we can't do it yeah Um, you know i wish that was because i'm willing to try if someone has a protocol of like trying to get me to eat moderate in moderation i would love that right but i I don't think i can do it it's been about a decade of me trying (laughs) we've all been told since childhood and that's the that's the standard advice is is you know a little bit of this and a little bit of that that really benefits the food industries because people like you and me never do a little bit we do a lot and then Uh, and then the final point is that, yeah, so there's, so you might get sent to the food, you might get sent to an eating disorder service or uh, when that doesn't work or, you know, if that isn't available locally, you, you might get referred to, I mean, possibly an, an addiction service, but they, they focus on alcohol and drugs. They, mm. They're not trained to deal with food addiction. And it's a different thing because you can live without alcohol and you can live without drugs you can avoid them but you can't avoid food as a category and eating so we all have to eat and we'll have to eat food so it makes it a really difficult uh, challenge to work with or you might get referred to the mental health services those are the only three options and mental health services wouldn't wouldn't have a they wouldn't have a clue because they don't combine the that this overlap between physiology and, and psychology and food and so on so really apart from going online and finding yourself like a group or a practitioner or, you know, following people like me, reading my book, Profits to the PhD, 
they fork in the road. <laughs> you know, there's very little actual help help out there for people. That so that's what I'm really passionate about now is getting the word out, trying to get this condition recognised in the ICD and the DSM as an an actual disease or condition. You know that that warrants research and and warrants the setting up of appropriate services for people. What, what did you say that EDSM? So the the uh, the ICD is the International Classification of Diseases, mm-hmm. and it's hosted by the World Health Organization, and it's a classification system for all recognised illnesses and conditions. And then the DSM is the Diagnostical Statistical uh, Manual, and it's that's hosted by the American Psychiatric Association, and it's got all the the sort of um, mental health and psychiatric type conditions in, including all the addictions, uh, mental health problems and so on. Neither of those classification systems uh, currently recognises food or sugar addiction as a a recognised condition. Right. Okay. That's that's massively fascinating. I've got a couple of questions. I, I, I want to move on a little bit to, to like barriers to change and kind of interventions in a second. But you mentioned before the the eight percent number of people yeah. have a, an addiction food addiction. Can you map this or has it been mapped against chronic disease prevalence? Oh, oh wouldn't that be great? So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, someone should do that for sure. Well, um, I was I was going to ask if you were if you were. Yeah. So let it. me. Let me think of, of what kind of research we've got. So obviously, in not surprisingly, in type 2 diabetics, you get a higher prevalence. In people with mental health problems, you, you get a higher prevalence. Uh, in people with obesity, you get a higher prevalence of food addiction. Because obviously, food addiction is tending, people will tending to be eating the sugar and the refined carbs and the ultra-processed food. So they're going to be vulnerable to those conditions that are, are worsened by that kind of diet. So mm-hmm. chronic pain, uh, type 2 diabetes, obesity, mental health problems are, are all linked there. So I suppose that's that's there is that research is, is out there. Yes, for sure. OK, right. Fascinating. I need to I think I've given myself some homework there because I need to look into that. I can, I can, uh, I can send you some uh i can yeah I, i've got i've got an end note library willing to share <laughs> i don't know if you've got an end note library of your own i, I do i'm not an end note library what do i use? use mendeley i think it's called oh right so i can't show you my end note library, well but i will I start end note in order to have access <laughs> yeah do that one hundred percent. Thank you. I appreciate welcome. that. Welcome. You're welcome. And um, we've we've mentioned food addiction, and there's also actually going back to a talk that I heard you um do at a conference. I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately, but it was on YouTube. And you used the Crave assessment t- tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you explain that and how it's used, and maybe how you use it in practice? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So, right. So, so there is um. There is a, a questionnaire that's used a lot in research called the, the YFAS, the Yale Food Addiction Scale. Um, and that that's the one that's used to do all the prevalence studies and blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't really developed to be used in the clinic necessarily or to, you know, to be easily scorable um, or to be kind of, uh, yeah, 
it, it was sort of designed for research purposes. Now, it is, it is used clinically, but there are a few issues. Oh, it tends to sort of underdiagnose people. And uh, anyway, so uh, myself and this colleague, Heidi Yaver, uh, thought it would be good to develop uh, a tool which is based on the criteria for addiction in the ICD that I've just described. The ICD has six criteria for uh, diagnosing someone with a substance use disorder is what they call it substance use disorder so that would be alcohol or drugs mm -hmm. um, but when you go through those six criteria they apply so magnificently <laughs> to, to, to these issues we've been talking about with with um, with food and, sh and sugar so we've tweaked tweak the questions so that it um, reflects those six criteria and we managed to squeeze it into the mnemonic craved so that we, you know, that people could remember it and we could develop a simple questionnaire that professionals could possibly use in the clinic to screen. So it's if somebody has three or more of these symptoms, it's really likely that they they're struggling with a with a food addiction problem. So I'll, I'll run through them and then you'll you'll see how well they apply. So C is for compulsion, and that's that thing we were talking about where despite your better intentions you're you're driven to consume these things so yeah. you might be sitting on your sofa you know reading your book or watching the telly and suddenly you're sort of consumed with thoughts about that half open packet of biscuits that are in the cupboard and you think right I'm not gonna no I'm not gonna have that no I've said I've you know I've had enough of that today and you sit there and five minutes pass and then you're still thinking about that pack, and you think oh <laughs> god and you're kind of driven to, you know, that feeling of being driven to consume when you, you wouldn't really want to. Um, R is for reaching. And what we mean for that is reaching for more means that sort of tolerance effect. Again, we all recognise that. We've talked about it with caffeine, but it's the same with alcohol and drugs. And food is that over time you need more. So, um, you know, you've said over the last few years you know you've struggled with this there may have been a time I guess for you then I'm not sure there was ever a time for me but there may have been a time for you where you could have had one or two biscuits and put them back in the cupboard but that over time it became three and then four and then five and that's to get that same hit if you like that same that we've not talked about how that works yet but how to get that same um sort of uh hit hit of feel good you know, right. interestingly, and I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but I have, okay. I have a story which exactly relates to this. Is like when I was young, um, my mum told me this actually. Um, I would look over at my dad's plate at the dinner table and so be ask, "Why has he got more than me?" Like that level of being like, "I want more, 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 more." And I, like I think I've always been this way, yeah, in a, in a way, like, unable to moderate I, food intake, and only. I think until I think you're was, in the gang. I think yeah. you're in the gang. Yeah, definitely. It was only when I was like in my teens, mid-teens, where I was at, like, I became wise to it a little bit more. I started going to the gym, speaking to people yeah. that were in good shape, what they did, and emulated that and kind of just repeated it. But yeah, right. yes. it, it took until then for me to really get control of it, I think. Yeah, when you when you could you could sort of, you could, in a way, bring your intellectual powers to solving this, this problem. Yeah, yeah. which was yeah, very naive to yeah um so yeah so this tolerance problem is is r for reaching um a is activities uh and this this refers to the fact that this is sort of to do with dopamine which again we haven't talked about yet but it's a neurotransmitter in the brain um and dopamine is implicated in all the different addictions so 
when we have a drink or we eat some cake uh or if we were to take drugs you you get a hit of dopamine in the brain which is the sort of reward motivation neurotransmitter um but one of the problems is that you get um you get a bigger hit than is natural so we were talking about evolution weren't we so the brain likes dopamine but also it doesn't like it to go <laughs> doesn't like it to go too high really um and that's partly why you get the the tolerance thing because so i'm going back a step um the brain starts to downregulate your dopamine receptors mm. um so that actually you have then less dopamine available to you you know as, as your steady state so then you need to have more to get the same effect if you like you yeah. have to press harder on the dopamine pedal um so that's why you get the tolerance effect but it also means that we the brain sort of focuses in on the thing that gives it the best dopamine hit so for us so for you and i that's sugar and carbohydrates and sort of volume of food we love we love that um and over time what can happen it happens to people with other addictions is that it crowd that crowds out other things that would have given them pleasure so they tend to sort of give up hobbies give up you know doing things that they enjoy and really all the enjoyment starts to come from thinking about food planning food I don't know about you, but I was always a, a real cook as well. So I'd spend lots of time looking at cookbooks, you know, thinking about food. <laughs> I when was a more I... of a cook show person. So I'd watch yeah, a cook cooking show, show, but never actually cook it. <laughs> yeah, looking looking at my watch thinking, how many, how long till I can start cooking the tea? Or, you know, <laughs> or can I go shopping for food? You know, it all, it all became sort of, or, or, or your brain sort of um, restarts focusing on that. So that's activities, Nick neglecting because you start neglecting other activities drawn into this sort of sphere of addiction uh v is for volume so having more than you intended you you've already talked about volume but eating more you know sitting down to a meal and thinking right i've got this on my plate that will be fine eating that and then i'm always doing this there's some there's some leftovers and i think oh i'll just go and <laughs> i just go and tidy those away you know <laughs> i'll just go and finish those off even though probably i wasn't you know still hungry in the traditional sense so v is for volume uh e is for exclusion and that's this is talking about the withdrawal effect so i talked about the withdrawal from caffeine didn't i but obviously people get you know where people have been drinking a lot for example they will get withdrawal symptoms when they stop or people get withdrawal from nicotine mm -hmm. why it's hard to give up uh caffeine etc so withdrawal symptoms from from sugar and carbohydrates you've already talked about some of them shakiness headaches i used to i used to get real bad crash uh migraine if i the the first day of a diet <laughs> i was trying to cut it out but i felt terrible um people also get gastrointestinal things they can get mood things like you feel more anxious or or depressed or you know so that there are gone yeah so, sorry <laughs> there's just okay. so much that you're saying that's triggering uh uh, loads of thoughts in my mind. So one of the, the key reasons why I got interested, became interested in nutrition was like nutritional psychiatry. So there's a woman called Dr. Kelly Brogan in the US um, and she wrote a book. The first book was called, I think it's A Mind of Your Own. And it was she was talking about blood sugar fluctuations throughout the day um, yeah. and how they can get misdiagnosed. So like a, a generalized anxiety disorder and actually it's just blood sugar dysregulation. Yes. And I was like, 
opened my mind, right? <laughs> because like if if I was feeling a little bit low or something and realized like I have these peaks and troughs throughout the day, like why is that? And it was actually just unstable, unstable blood unstable sugar. Unstable blood sugar, yeah. And then you find yourself reaching. I was very, very, yeah, I did that whole shaky thing. I can remember as a teenager being really worried about myself because one time I was like incredibly shaky. But then those things go away when you consume the substance. The yes. same as, you know, if you had alcohol withdrawals and you, you you had a hair of the dog, you feel fine again for a little while. So, yeah, so the, the withdrawal thing is, and it's what people, uh, that's what people really struggle with when they're, when they're trying to get to give all this stuff up. You know, you have to be able to sort of get through that however, you know, however you can, whether you sort of taper down very slowly if you can do that but a lot of us food addicts we've already talked about we can't moderate so it's no good <laughs> the paper what we have to do is check it's all right because we're not on meds etc you know check with your healthcare provider don't just go away and do this you know if you're not on medication it's probably going to be fine you're probably just going to feel terrible but there are some meds you shouldn't just go cold turkey with carbohydrate on some diabetes meds and blood pressure meds for example but yeah so I did the whole cold turkey thing. Felt t absolutely shocking for about a week after reading that John Briffer book, and then oh, the lights came on day eight. I felt amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I felt really, really good. Yeah. So that's the withdrawal, and then just to finish on craved, the last one is damage, and I think this is, in a way, the defining heart of addiction. It's where you continues to use despite knowing it's doing you harm. Mm. So there are people who who know, for example, that that sugar is bad it's, and the carbs are bad for their mental health or their physical health, like they're type two diabetic or, you know, they've got a lot of weight to lose. They know it's harming them, uh, but they're, they're powerless to, to stop. They can they continue using despite the fact it's knowing doing them damage. So that's, uh, that's deeper damage. Uh, and that's obviously, you know, it's the same with, with other addictions where where people say with alcohol and they know it's harming their relationships it's harming their health it's harming their financial situation it's it's, it's you know might lose them losing the job or whatever but they just they can't stop even though they're aware of that it's, it's a real hallmark of addiction yeah i mean it's just fascinating you can definitely see how the craved can overlay onto like drug abuse but it, it also so perfectly onto dietary habits and addicted and addiction yeah i know it's uh so it's perfect. unbelievable in a way yeah um, and i think it really helps people people who are sort of skeptic about the fact that food food can be addictive um you go through this with them so i did it once at the phc conference i think there's a it's still it will be still on the phc youtube channel i think mm -hmm. where i gave a talk about food addiction we got people to stand up if these criteria applied to them and to and to count how many applied to them and i it was maybe something to do with the audience there who are all into the sort of you know the sort of low carb eating that we've been talking about um oh but yeah it was the vast majority of the audience recognized these symptoms uh in in themselves so it was it's very very interesting is i think it, yeah it's 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 very widespread i mean not everybody has all of them or or enough to be you know perhaps classified as an addict but some people will be harmful users as we say like people are with alcohol sometimes you know it's not that they're actual addicts but from from time to time or for whatever reason they've just got in some bad habits you know they've maybe 
been going through a period of stress and their eating's like you know really really messed up and they have some of these symptoms so they they can sort of pull back and then there's other people like your partner there who you know then they're never gonna it's never gonna happen because they don't (laughs) they don't have that drive they don't have that yeah and the thing is she might have a craving but it's quickly satisfied do you know what i mean by like that biscuit or a small bowl of crisps or something and i just i couldn't (laughs) <laughs> I couldn't do that at all. Um, it's quite funny. Um, I've, I've got a, a specific example I'd like to to get your thoughts on and then maybe dive into the barriers of why it's so hard for people to change these and what we can do to help. Um, so mm-hmm. kind of practical steps. Um, so some people have a different... Oh, how, how do I structure this question? Everyone has a different Achilles heel, right, in terms of addiction, Um some people are like a certain group of people I know love crisps, right? But what is it that drives people towards certain foods over others from a psychological perspective? Is there one? Do you know what? I thought where you were going with that, which is another really important point about addiction is that they they tend, because, because they all happen in this reward center in the brain they tend to interact. So there is a, an, an addiction interaction disorder. And oh, often let's dive sugar, into that. <laughs> yeah, often sugar is the, is the gateway drug. And there's actually, there's actually um, again, on YouTube, a, a video of um, Eric Clapton talking about this because he had a lot of problems with drugs, but he talked about how sugar was his gateway drug. And that as a kid, you know, he was like ours, all the sugar. <laughs> um, but then that, that led into other addictions. And so you can often find, so we all know as well that effect, people give up smoking, they put on weight, don't they? Because they're, they're eating more sweets, trying to get that, still get that hit. You know, they're eating polos and jelly beans and things like that. Or the same when people give up alcohol, they often uh, turn to sugar to, to get that same hit. So there is this interrelationship between the, between the addictions um, genetically as well. Um, it's quite quite um, a common thing when I interview someone with a food addiction that they had a parent who had an alcohol problem. Often, w- women had fathers who had alcohol problems. It's not all, it's not everybody, um, but there is a bit of a genetic com- component. So I thought that's I thought that's where you were going with that. Um, no, but, but that's really interesting because it shows you like addictive people... behaviours can overlap onto food as well. So it's not just if you it's, if you someone who's prone brain... to get addiction, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. so someone that is prone to get addicted to, I don't know, smoking, alcohol, whatever, are more likely to get addicted to to certain foods as well. Yeah. That that makes perfect sense. It's to do with this sort of dopamine hit, you know, the serotonin, the other things that go on, uh, are, are common pathways in the addiction side of things. Yeah, so you're asking why people get. Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of reasons for that, and some of them are maybe a little bit more psychological. You know that. <clears throat> that they're the things that we find comforting or we associate with. So this is, this is, yeah, this is more my proper territory really, isn't it? Is, <laughs> you know, maybe as a child, I don't know about you, but um, so I, I'm a bit older than you. So <clears throat> luckily in a way for me, when I grew up, there weren't all the ultra processed foods. It wasn't as available. It wasn't, you know, you couldn't, um, we were quite limited in terms of access to sweets and crisps and things like that. And we had this system at home. I don't know if it was common at the time, but on a Friday night, you could have a choose of a, 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 fi- a can of fizzy pop and either a little chocolate thing or a packet of crisps. 
So you, you know, we waited for Friday to come round so we could have this can of lemonade and this packet of crisps. <laughs> so you can get this association, obviously, with pleasant memories, you know, um, pleasant feelings, habits that form very young, where you associate, you know, so for me, cheese and onion crisps. Yeah, that takes me right back to watching wrestling with my dad. <laughs> and, you know, that, that was a really happy, that's a happy thing. Or, you know, for some people, it's a certain kind of biscuit, I guess, because that's what they had as children. So there can be those sorts of links. Um, and then I think the rest of it is probably just more about that that taste that some people really like the savoury type things and some people really like the, like the sweet things. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So if you kind of have a connection to a certain food or it's connected to a memory, that's a that is a big thing because I've, I've read about like smell being really you know that can trigger yeah. certain memories in your brain yeah. and things like that people baking bread and reminds them of a, a time in the youth or whatever and this goes back to the dope so the dopamine thing um reward and motivation your brain really really sort of imprints not just the, the the flavor but you're right but all of the things that sort of surround that experience so where where we've um, where there's a certain colour on the packaging or mm. the smell or even the sound of the packet. Like I can hear people open, opening packages in the kitchen. I don't know about you. And I'm thinking, what, what are they eating? What are they eating? <laughs> I have to go and have a look. <laughs> that crinkly noise or the snap or the, all, all of that sensory uh, information is, is, in, is encoded and in, in, embedded so that when, when, we, when we encounter any of those triggers, the brains think already releasing dopamine which is already making the cravings come so you go to the cinema you see the ben and jerry sign you're already drooling <laughs> <laughs> because you you know you've had it before and you got that dopamine hit and the d dopamine starts and you kind of before you know it you're, you're walking towards the, the ben and jerry stand and getting your double scoop with the not that i ever did that of course no, I didn't. <laughs> but to give people examples you know and that's how you can really get fixated on on certain things um i've i i know somebody who was her her thing was terry's chocolate oranges and she used to buy them from costco or somewhere and she had like 50 terry's chocolate oranges under the bed you know that that was just her her one thing yeah. and it was like a comfort at night you know to have this Terry's chocolate orange associated with relaxation, end of the day, watching the telly. Uh, and then it, it just becomes more and more of a habit. So that's the, that's yeah, the habit, habit forming side of things. So, okay. Well, we've covered a lot and I'm conscious time is getting on. <laughs> so, we, can go, we can have, we can have part two another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when we've talked about habits and these addictive properties to certain foods and food associations and things like that, for people that recognize them and want to change them, what do you see from a psychological perspective, the biggest barriers to change or to healthy lifestyle change? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, I, th I think these days uh, the, the, the food environment is utterly crazy. You know, the things that, that we're bombarded with all the time you know the sugars the cakes it's everywhere it's at work it's at the garage you know you have to walk down those aisles in the supermarket um and i think it's so normalized i don't know I, I don't know when we'll all wake up but it's just so normal that on your so every and every possible 
sort of event in the calendar is really just a festival of sugar. So I'll just reel off a few examples. Birthdays, most people can't imagine having a birthday without a cake. Christmas, don't get me started. Valentine's Day, Mother's Day. All of these things involve a box of chocolates or a cake or a meal out, and that's a blowout. Holidays, you, it's, so it's become, I mean, partly due to advertising, I think this this idea that you 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 kind of almost can't have a good time or you know you should definitely treat yourself you're worth it those, those kinds of messages and I think those are really now embedded completely embedded in our psyche so I it is hard for people to to change these habits and it's triply quadruply hard for people like you and I that have that real draw and that that pull towards them uh, we really have to work at um bringing good food into the house, cooking good food, you know, eating good food and focusing on that and resisting all these other, these other temptations. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you have, it's such a good point because we, we live in it. I guess it's people classify it as an obesogenic environment. The idea that, you know, ultra processed foods are so re readily available and so hyper palatable that they are addictive in that sense um, and very easily to overconsume, as you and me know all too well. And that, I guess, is a huge barrier itself. So I guess the first element would be addressing your this particular issue or your Achilles heel, as I referred to it before, and then not buying it. <laughs> one, main, thing, one thing. Fantastic advice. And I say that in, in the book, you know, step one is get rid of all the stuff that's in your house that's you know you you can't moderate or you know you shouldn't it's ultra processed or it's high in sugar or whatever it is now if other people live in the house it's a bit difficult so i think your partner probably wouldn't be very impressed but there's things <laughs> you can do in the environment to make that easier for yourself so you can have your own cupboard for a while or you can have your own shelf on the fridge in the fridge for a while you can talk to the people in the house and say you know i know you want to have your little bowl of crisps in the evening or your or whatever it is that that person wants to keep in their life can you please store that out of my sight because that seeing it and, and hearing it is certainly in the first few weeks I'm all right now I can I can watch someone have a packet of crisps and I'll have a sort of you know a wistful longing but I, I would never eat a packet of crisps now because that habit of not eating crisps is so embedded so if you can ask people at home to help you keep it out of sight and out of mind, yeah, and then don't bring it in the house. If they want to eat junk, they're entirely responsible for their own junk buying. Mm. <laughs> and if they're kids, why would you want to feed them? People will say, well, what about the kids? What? Why would you want to feed your kids junk and make them into a food addict like you are? <laughs> you wouldn't, would you? I've got four grandchildren. I never give them cake or, or, or sweets. We give them books. We play games with them you know we you know whatever it do do other things that don't always use food as a, as a reward for you it's not a food is nourishment it's not it shouldn't be a reward or a celebration or a cheer you up thing um though other things can serve that function um, yeah that's such a good way of looking at it such a good way because it, I, you were so right when you identified that we associate celebrations with food or vice versa um Christmas is so hard for people when they first start. <laughs> all of these things are hard. It's hard when you first start and it's a it, it's a lifelong project. So for people like you and I, um, yes, we can be doing well, 
but it takes quite it takes quite a lot of energy to to keep there and that's why you you do need that community you do need that support you do need to understand it's not it's not your fault it's just the way you are but it is the way you are so you, you're going to have to work at it um and you, certainly in the early days you'll you'll slip and fall i'm sure you did i i have many times even since i knew this information because of the power of that that the neuropsychology that goes on and the habits and so on it you know it step by step slow by little by slow <laughs> we have to haul ourselves out yeah. and you know and, and keep doing all the things that that are going to keep us as, as solidly as possible in recovery and there's there's so much yeah. to talk about there as well because i i guess i i do because i will eat so if I'm, I'm going out with friends and we have dinner together i might share a dessert it's very rarely that i get one to myself um but i can do that now and it'd be okay mm. but if i did that earlier in the day and had something sweet at breakfast for example i would mm. crave those foods throughout the day so actually in the evening after dinner is when i can probably get away with it the most which is quite interesting in and of itself but that works yeah. for me if, exactly. And I don't do it every day. So some people may be able to do that. A rock bottom food addict probably couldn't get away with that. So yeah. because you've you've re you've really understood it, you know the the rest of your diet's really good. You you know you can get up the next day and just go back to your normal routine. Um, some people that would trigger, but again, it's so unique, and we all learn we all learn that you know, and you have to learn it several times. You know, like me with the so peanut butter was <laughs> I used to really love peanut butter and I think oh it's fine you know it's low carb um I've got some in my cupboard <laughs> I of peanut butter put it in the cupboard yeah this time you know I'm just gonna have a, a little bit on some carrot sticks or whatever no the whole jar would go so I you know I had to uh, and about, about six months later I'd probably think oh yeah I can, I'll be I'll be all right now I'll be, I'll be fine. <laughs> so now I, ne I never do that but uh, these are all learning experiences and it just goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning about everyone's unique, their own kind of drug foods are, are unique um, and how much you can sort of nudge your borderlines is unique. So if I go out for a meal and there's a little bit of cheese in it or a few nuts on it, again, that's fine. I'll be all right. As long as I don't come home and start eating cheese, cheese and nuts, I'd, I'd, I'd be all right. But if I have them in the house, I can't moderate them. So that would be a, one of my personal kind of, you know, boundaries. So for someone who's looking, struggling with weight loss, for example, let's use this this example, um, and they're looking to change their lifestyle for a better, we've we've identified not buying it in the supermarket, getting it out of your, of your home. What's a thing that they can do to help them control those kinds of cravings and things of that nature. Yeah. So again, going back to um, the proper the proper human diet, and um, you know, really as a baseline to focus on getting, you know, probably starting with three meals a day. Not everybody sticks to that in the long run. Sometimes they go down to to two. Like I don't eat breakfast, so. But that, again, that's a unique thing. But start with having enough protein and, and enough fat that your body isn't isn't actually craving stuff that it needs. It's not craving nutrition, at least. So you can sort of um, drown out, you know, the, the and you're not hungry. You know, you shouldn't be hungry. That's that's not sustainable for anyone, is it? Just like white knuckling it through through hunger. 
it's bad enough having to white knuckle it through the the sort of crazy cravings so um yeah so the food is the foundation really you're getting enough you're not you're not hungry you're getting that getting that solid and then yeah maintaining the the abstinence from these things that you that you uh, crave so you know really le- learning about shopping and food prep and um you know making sure you're eating enough maybe you have to take stuff with you you know make sure you have something at work if you're a working person or if you're traveling you know you're going to have to pack something up so there is quite a lot of thinking and and preparation and, and behavior change that can has to go into you know keeping keeping that that recovery going so that's like step number one if you like but then of course because we're taking away people's comfort they also the 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 other big part of the picture is bringing in things that are going to get them dopamine serotonin endorphins uh oxytocin which are all the feel-good neurotransmitters get those in other ways so think i mean the the biggest bang for your buck is some sort of exercise activity when i when you say exercise people are sometimes going you know but it could just literally walk walking is fantastic walking outside in the sunshine will give you all of those feel-good neurotransmitters walking and exercise absolutely perfect for mental health and for you know stabilizing your your blood sugars and so any kind of exercise is good yoga is perfect as well you know doing things that you enjoy i'm a knitter you can see the wool up there i love that when you're knitting you can't be eating because you you, you'd mess it up so i'm using my hands knitting that takes it's mindful it takes my takes my thoughts off food find something like that that you love some sort of a hobby that you've given up um or used to like when you were younger you know go, go back to something like that that's gonna gonna give you that social connection being in the, being in a community that are trying to achieve the same thing is incredibly powerful uh being part of that group process is, is another really important part of recovery I love those tips. Those are awesome. I have one. I know we're coming up in time, and I, I always ask everyone that comes on the show three questions. Um, but before I ask them, I have one more question, and this is a question which I've been thinking of throughout this podcast. Um, and you you can correct me if this is not relevant, but it seems to me like with any chronic disease, um, food addiction and everything associated with it is multifactorial genetics predisposing someone to towards fat gain or or addictive properties etc and the way like we partition nutrients and things that like that but it seems to me that maslow's hierarchy of needs can be a major factor in this case so in a sense that if one of those levels of maslow's hierarchy of needs is compromised and i'll link to a graphic in the show notes for people to look at if you don't know what this is um if one of these levels is compromised for example the loss of a loved one or you know a breakup um health will be deprioritized and therefore you'll have a blip what are your thoughts on this and is there any way we can help ameliorate the problem totally and another sort of aspect of the whole thing we've not talked about is trauma and how that affects the brain you know particularly when we're younger or you know even later on and then that you know we talked about sugar being the gateway drug you know often for kids in difficult situations sugar's the only soothe thing that they have available to them and often i have talked to people you know who've had quite really quite difficult starts in life and that was their it really was their their coping mechanism um yes so yeah definitely trauma loss 
you know that those can i think i think in those of us with that that tendency already you know that can that can tip you it, it's not the original cause i think probably most of us are, that are going to be this way out are born this way out mm -hmm. but i think it can definitely worsen things and and speed it along and uh, make it more more difficult um to get to that place where you can get into recovery and again those people in our groups who've been who've been going through stressful stressful things will definitely struggle more you know those who are maybe going through a divorce or a loss of a job or um some sort of bereavement that they're really going to struggle more than people who are in a sort of you know they've got that stable psychosocial picture going on um yeah so it, it does all connect right and in in that instance would you um look at soothing or dealing with the problem that has occurred whether it's like in going through the trauma of losing a loved one for example the mourning phase before correcting i say correcting before um dealing with the kind of nutritional health element how would you tackle that problem yeah I did, again, I, did, did i articulate that well enough? yeah you did i know what you're saying it, again it's a it's a little bit unique but um usually with it within a year of a bereavement you wouldn't want to be trying to do some do something like you know make a major change or you know yeah so we i'd probably again depending on the individual circumstances i'll probably say you know do the do the grieving you know and if you need some support with that get that and and if you want to do this work you know maybe maybe come back when that's a little bit more resolved because that that will be difficult but having said that um and you were talking about people with um mental health problems and how that can be normalized when you get the food right so we always say, you know, really in recovery, the food does come first. You've got, you have to do, you have to do that first because you don't know what's left over mental health or other problems wise until, until you've eliminated all that stuff and you've got your biochemistry sort of, um, uh, you know, treated or, or, or more level because you may find that, a lot of the emotional problems just completely resolve, mm. <laughs> like, you, like you were saying. Um, so, d you know, don't don't be going into therapy, if you like, until we know what's what's. You know, let's do the sugar addiction stuff first, and then if there's other emotional things left, then yeah, then maybe you need to go and uh, talk to someone about about that. But you know, let's get the <laughs> let's get the. The foundation's right, you know, the proper human diet. Let's get that going on because there's this incredible connection. I hope that's what people have picked up between between what you eat and how your brain works. You know, memory, mood, all of these things. Brilliant. Thank you so much for answering that. It's been, I feel we've, we've covered a heck of a lot. <laughs> but I have three questions, three quick questions to ask you that I ask everyone that comes on the show. With the first yep. being, what is the most impactful health change that you have made in your life and why? So I think that's probably reasonably obvious that it would be giving <laughs> up sugar, uh, grains, ultra-processed foods. 
you know, sugar probably being the, the chief of those. So that, that's got to be the biggest. But then obviously you've heard all the other things that I've given up as well. Caffeine, alcohol, <laughs> nuts and dairy. So uh, they, they've all had their effect, but sugar would have been the biggest for sure. Brilliant. Um, and another one, how can healthcare become more integrated with the kind of modalities that we spoke about today? I think it's just about getting the, getting the word out, getting getting people trained. Um, yeah, if we can get people interested in at least bearing in mind that people may be suffering with this problem, they've got you know they've heard about craved there, you know, and then 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 the advice isn't moderation, <laughs> yeah. which is the standard advice. So so for those of us that have tried you know, with all good faith, moderation, and, and it's not working, maybe there's a, there's another path and maybe, maybe healthcare pro- provide, maybe, maybe people could be more open to that and to supporting their patients, you know, in a, in a sort of abstinence journey. So on the public health collaboration website, we've got some pages called food addiction resources, and there's pages there for professionals to go and look at. It's got, um, a screen up there and it's also got um you know information about food addiction so that you'd hopefully feel a little bit more empowered to support somebody who 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 you thought may may have this may have this problem excellent i will link to that in the show show notes for everyone and last but not least actually let me repeat that i've got one last question for you jen but before i ask it can you please tell the listeners where they can find you and what exciting projects you have coming up Oh, yes. Right. So um, I mostly hang around on Twitter in terms of social media. So it's at Jen underscore Unwin. Um, I'll never catch up with the number of followers that David's got, but I would appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's me on Twitter. Um, I run a clubhouse, which people might be interested in. I don't know if you've come across Clubhouse. Mm -hmm. It's a, a social media app on your phone. And I run a clubhouse every Wednesday uh, at 6 p.m. It's called Fork in the Road and um, we have guests or we have a topic and I have other people on there with me. We're talking about broadly these kinds of issues. Um, and we've actually got Vinnie Torturich tonight. I'm really excited. And you can listen to replays as well. So if anyone wants to go on Clubhouse, follow me. Same, it's at Jen underscore Unwin or follow the club Fork in the Road. You can hear all our back back episodes as well as come and join in and 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 talk to us it's another way for people to connect sort of community wise um i've got a a food addiction weekend coming up at the end of march i'm not sure when this is going out and um we've got a four-day intensive in may with bitten johnson i do believe there's a couple of places left for that so people could get in touch with me um, and we've got a, a one-day conference on food addiction, May the 20th in Bristol. Brilliant. Uh, followed by, on the 19th, 20th, the Public Health Collaboration uh, Conference, which is always brilliant. So come and no say bias. hello. No, no bias. <laughs> David will be there. I'll be there. There'll be lots of interesting people there uh, speaking. And, you you know, you we get to all talk together. It's, it's really fun. Um, in terms of future... Um, yeah, ju- just more of the same, really. Um, we're doing this research, as I say, so I hope to publish that. And uh, yeah, just watch this watch this space for more. Follow me on Twitter for more either weekends or other courses that are coming up, both for professionals and members of the public. Brilliant. I will link oh, to buy, everything. Ooh. Buy the book, Fork in the Road, 
all profits to the Public Health Collaboration. <laughs> and all my wisdom <laughs> is in Fork in the Road. Brilliant. I will link to everything, including your book, in the show notes. Um, and last but not least, Jen, can you please provide the listeners with three quick tips to help improve their health and well-being from today? Right, from today. So obviously be mindful of your sugar flour and ultra processed food intake and you know and the, and the habits around those and uh you know try and yeah if it feels like the right thing for you you know to to try and cut those down so yeah much less sugar i think makes a massive difference to people overall health and, and mental health so that has to be number one for me doesn't it um i think I, I kind of had four. I was finding it hard to cut down. I think home learning, if you don't, cooking stuff from fresh at home. So, I mean, basically the main thing is eat real food cooked at home. Don't buy ultra processed stuff. It, it, it's as quick, I think, you know, uh, like to cook yourself a, a piece of fish and some vegetables is as quick as, you know, getting it out of the packet and putting it in the. So buy, buy fresh, buy local and, and cook and prepare and take stuff to work you know don't, don't eat things with industrial seed oils and sugars and things added to them so things out of packets things not in packets um so that would be one and another one is yeah to get some kind of movement in your in your day as a habit make it a habit um and notice the difference that makes to your physical or mental health so some sort of movement like walking or yoga or something and yeah, really make time for yourself for that. You know, again, if you look at it from an evolutionary perspective, what were we eating? What were we doing? We were eating just real natural foods in their natural state, and we were doing a lot of physical activity. And it's not that long in evolutionary terms since that's how we were living. <laughs> Absolutely. Those were brilliant. Thank you so much. Jen, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you and I really do hope that we can do this again soon. You, you definitely can. I really appreciate it and I've really enjoyed it as well. Thank you for listening to the Functional Health Podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today in the show notes. If you have a second, please consider leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does make a huge difference and helps get this valuable information out and reach more people. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date and know whenever I release a new episode. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook or our website and all questions are welcome. As always, thanks to Joss Aurelia for all the editing and thank you all for your support.